Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. Dear Young Rocker, you're doing it. Something you've dreamed about since you were a little kid. You're about to live on an island. This dream is so strong that you'll still have it at 31 as you squirrel away a few bucks here and there, imagining the house you'll buy there someday. Another life choice that will have people say, why the heck would you want to do that? Just like putting hundreds of unpaid hours into making a podcast that no one might listen to, or playing punk music in grungy basements into your 30s, or spending a full week of 13-hour days once again unpaid, helping kids feel good about themselves through playing music. You'll learn the secret is to not seek anyone's approval for your choices anymore. And the easiest way to do that is just don't tell anyone. Although I guess I just told everyone. Anyway, your heart guides you and you wither if you don't follow it. And it is leading you to be an island person. Island people are a different breed. Most of them, like you, are artists and find some weird security in being trapped in the middle of the ocean. To you, it feels more like being swaddled on all sides by the mother of all creation on Earth. There is no better feeling in the world to you than looking in front and seeing water and turning around and seeing it behind you, too. I hope you really enjoy this summer living in the island house, your heaven on Earth. And if I could give you any advice, it would be go there more. Go there every chance you get before before it's bulldozed by someone who doesn't care. I can't say any more about it without crying. Love you. I'm looking over the side of the boat to the water below. I'm thinking about my upcoming job. So, I knew I didn't want to be a server again this summer after the trauma of being yelled at by old people and subsequently tipped $1 or nothing at the Cracker Barrel. But I wasn't sure what I was qualified to do when I started looking for summer jobs. I checked out some driving jobs like island taxi and stuff but my parents said that could be unsafe, even though I thought it could be fun to drive the big vans. They're so worried about everything. Then I came across an interesting job. It said seeking college students for green, chemical-free house cleaning. I checked out the website. A kid my age named Thomas had started the company. I applied and talked to him on the phone. He seemed sort of interesting. He said, whoa, a lot. I wonder what he's like in person. Chelsea the maid, huh? I'm a little nervous about all of it, but right now the rhythmic splashing of the waves on the side of the ferry is soothing me. I breathe in the ocean smell. I think I feel my brain chemistry evening out with each breath.
I could stand here forever. Guess not. Drivers, please return to your vehicle for docking. Now arriving at Oak Bluffs. My stomach has that jiggly feeling as I start driving toward the house and up and down the humps of the dirt road. When I skid into the sand driveway, I feel like I'm going to pee my pants from excitement, and almost really do as I bounce on the rotting wooden deck trying to figure out which of my keys my dad gave me fits in the store. When I get the door open, I run for the toilet, but what registers is the smell. This cabin was built by my great-granddad out of cedar wood. It's the best smell in the whole world. When I'm done in the bathroom, I just stand in the living room and look up at the wooden beams and breathe in the soothing ancient smell. Then I open the big sliding glass door overlooking the ocean and let the sea breeze come in and mix with the wood. This, this is the smell and the place that brings back the only memories I have of feeling truly free and relaxed and happy as a kid, and maybe ever. This feeling is home. I take off my shoes and go barefoot out onto the rock seawall in front of the house. I still know each rock. I think of them as big monster teeth as I hop across. I come to the one rock that always has a puddle in the middle of it, and the pinkish one with a big white streak across it. And when I get to the tall pile of rocks at the very end, I look to my right out over the ocean and remember the poem I wrote in third grade. I won a poetry contest for it. It was about being here because that was the most poetic feeling I knew. I can only remember one line. I dive like a whale from the rocks into the ocean. And I remember my dad saying, well, you can't actually do that, you'd hit the sand. And my mom saying, she's using poetic license, David. And how I was a creative genius. Ironic seeing as I'm now a maid and doing absolutely nothing creatively. I did bring a notebook and my base. We'll see what happens. There are a couple of unoccupied houses on the other side of the cottage, including our other one next door but no other houses over here, out on this spit of land. I'm very alone. The front yard is just the ocean, which wraps around the small town beach on the left side, and turns into a channel, which goes into a big saltwater lake behind the house. I walk across the little beach to the jetty wall, and then walk down toward the lake. The sun's setting. I sit down cross-legged on a rock and feel its warmth absorbed from the sun on my bottom. My right side is facing the ocean and my left side is facing the lake. And in front of me is the channel that separates the two. And beyond that is Diane Sawyer's empty summer estate. Soon, the sun turns into a big orange ball on my right and starts sinking into the ocean. Think about yin and yang. The sun is yang, I think, as I breathe in, noticing every little gust of air around me, 
trying to feel every grain of sand under my weight squished onto the rock. I notice on my left that the moon has already appeared in the sky as a faint white circle over the lake and is rising. I breathe out and think of the moon as yin. I continue to breathe in and feel the last warmth of the sun as it sinks and breathe out and feel the cool moon as it becomes fuller and brighter. I put my hands on my knees and make a loop with my thumb and pointer fingers in a yoga style. I'm going to do a lot of breathing and walking and meditating here, I think. After I watch the last burning speck of sun sink completely into the water, I stand up and walk barefoot down the dirt road, past the house, and then into the woods, breathing in the smell of the scrubby ocean pine trees, until I start to feel chilly and can't see anything at all. And then I walk back to the house and grab my record player, put it down on the wooden floor, and plug it in. I have a nervous minute, realizing I'll be very alone in the dark soon. I put on the most comforting album I have, Cat Stevens' Tea for the Tillerman. I lay down on the hardwood, close my eyes, and let the swells of music take me. I think the thing that makes me like music the most is when it can go from really intense to really calm and back again. And this album makes me imagine a quiet stream that turns into a river of lava and going from walking through a pretty forest to climbing a huge mountain. Visualizing things helps, but throughout all of this, I still notice the anxiety in my body. I'm determined to get rid of it, to do whatever it takes. It might be possible here, since I'm living with the being I feel emotionally closest to in this world. This land this cottage, this beach. This place is sacred. There's no cable to watch here. There's no internet. There isn't even cell service, and hardly anyone on the whole island has come down for the summer yet. There are empty houses everywhere, and I am the very last one on this dead-end street. I think the reason I feel anxious, though, is kind of like when you feel bad on a beautiful sunny day. Like, the worry in the back of your mind that you could possibly waste it and it'll be gone forever. Even though you're out in the sun right now, you know it can't last forever. You'll have to leave or it will get cold, so you want to absorb as much as possible, and then you get stressed out trying to do that. Even though I just got here, I'm already obsessing about how it can't last forever. I want to breathe in the peace of this place as deeply as possible, but it never feels like enough, because I know I can't really live here permanently. Things will change. It'll get cold. I'll leave eventually. Every time I've come here to escape and feel relaxed for a few days, I've been sad about leaving from the second I arrive and just feel nervous that I'm not absorbing it enough the whole time, especially when I'm alone. I curl up on the sun-bleached couch cushions. The smell of the fabric makes me remember sitting on it in a wet bathing suit, slathered in sunscreen, 
watching the same collection of cartoon VHS tapes as a kid, over and over. It's comforting. This is as much a home as I've ever felt, but I still can't get rid of this acorn of anxiety in my chest, because I know it's not real. It's not permanent, it's just a beach house. This summer is just an illusion until I go back to the reality of polluted trafficy lol and another hideous cinderblock dorm room and people who don't understand me and eventually some boring job I probably hate and all the other terrible parts of being a grown-up. God, I wish my brain could let me enjoy anything. I'm in the old red Subaru, aka the vineyard car, bumping along only halfway out of the mile and a half dirt road I live on when I start worrying about this party. I wonder if it will be more mega rich kids like Thomas or middle class townie kids or both. I wish I didn't have to drive by myself and be nervous alone, but I don't know anyone else going except for Thomas who told me about it, but he's not gonna drive 30 minutes out of his way to pick me up on my super remote corner of the island. Plus, he's my boss. I guess if I drink, maybe I can crash at the party house or something. Probably good since I'm living in the middle of nowhere with no roommate. It takes me a while to find the party. It's dark and raining. There aren't really many street lamps on the island and I can barely see through the windshield with these crappy wipers. I pull over and pull the old vineyard street map out of the pocket on the door. I see I'm exactly where I should be. There's an unmarked road I haven't tried, so I decide I'll give it a shot. After going down this road with no houses for far too long, I finally see the line of cars. Maybe I should have pre-gamed, I think, but I guess that's illegal and I'm in a car with a very expired inspection sticker anyway. I look down at myself. I seem normal, right? I think. Just a t-shirt and sneakers and jeans. And it's like a tight, normal, girly t-shirt, not a baggy band shirt or anything. I want to just blend in and disappear if I can. No one will have any idea I'm really a weirdo musician. I open the door. It's early, so it's not super packed. I can move from room to room by just saying excuse me a couple times. I'm relieved that it's a normal looking house, like a place a family might live in year round. There's a deck out back that looks like the dad built it himself, and ugly carpet and a 70s looking kitchen. It's just like any high school friend's parents house. I pretend to like the song playing, something about throwing your hands up in the air. I finally find Thomas out back. Of course, he's wearing a Ralph Lauren baby pink button-down unbuttoned to his stomach and Louis Vuitton loafers to a house party. It looks like he spent a good hour on his hair and immediately starts flipping it around with his fingers when I say hi. He's the kind of guy who doesn't really look at you when he talks to you. Either he's looking for a mirror to look at himself in, or using you as one. 
like he's looking at you looking at him. I can sense that he's probably just as insecure as I am inside. And so somehow that makes me feel completely unintimidated and even confident around this dude, who always seems surrounded by girls. He asks if I want a shot, and I say sure. He pours me some Mount Gay rum. I think I've had three drinks in total in the last three months, and that party where I met the Facebook guy is still the only one I've been to in college before I stopped trying to make friends and started wasting my life shoplifting and being in a cult with my crazy sociopathic ex-boyfriend. Thomas walks off to see his friends, and I stand by myself for a while, trying to get the courage to talk to a random person. I retreat into the kitchen to lean against the counter, and I find untended alcohol there. Soon, I've done three more shots. Okay, mentally promise my mom and dad I won't drive myself home. This is what you're supposed to do at a party. Have as much as you can as fast as you can, right? The liquor doesn't help my nerves. Everyone looks like they know each other. So I pour more of it into a red Solo cup, add some Coke someone left on the counter, and pretend to look at my phone while I scan the room. They all look so normal. There's at least three guys walking around in salmon shorts here. I guess I'm a normie now too, though. If it makes life easier, well, I'll take it. Trying to be unique was very lonely, but am I cut out for this? Am I doing it right? No one's talking to me, and I'm not sure if they can smell my weirdness on me, or it's just because I don't know anyone. This is what normal college girls do, right? They wear tight, boring clothes and get drunk, and then they say stupid stuff, and everyone laughs at it, and they hook up with random guys and don't understand why none of the guys respect them or want to seriously date them after 12 drunken blowjobs. And then they bitch to their 200 friends about it, but they just keep going after rich, hot douchebags anyway. This is the standard method of being a young person with friends instead of a weirdo, as far as I know. If only these people saw me a couple years ago wearing a dog collar as a necklace with half blue and half green hair and giant baggy pants. I wonder if they can sense my differentness behind the rip-off Michael Kors purse I have on my shoulder and the boring haircut and blonde highlights my mom paid for because I finally agreed to go to her hairdresser. She said, I look my age for once. We've even been listening to a lot of Top 40 radio just because I'm trying to be less stuck up about music. Maybe I can just blend in for the rest of college and be a sheeple. Look, I'm drinking really cheap alcohol from a red plastic cup. Soon, a short blonde guy comes up to me. The same compact build of Aaron, but cuter face. He even has the same sort of weird confidence saying my name with every question. So, Chelsea, what's central Massachusetts like? It feels familiar. He tells me his name is Johnny and gives me a red striped beer, which I chug, and then another. We keep talking about college in Massachusetts. He goes to Harvard. As we talk, another 50 kids file in. 
By 10 p.m., there's got to be 100 people between the back deck, the house, and the front lawn. I start feeling like I could say anything to anyone. So I just tell this kid, you look like my ex. And he says, you look like my ex too. Ah, that's hilarious. So funny. Everything he says is really just hilarious. Want to go explore the party, he asks, handing me another red stripe. I know I've had more than three drinks, but I think less than ten. I think. I should definitely not have ten drinks. This one is five? As I walk into the crowd, everything feels fuzzy. I don't mind all the people around me, even though I usually hate crowds. It feels nice. I don't mind bumping into anyone. Everything's nice. Everyone is nice. Johnny is nice. Even this dumb music sounds nice. Where is he? Whatever. My senses start to blur into one big pink fuzzy puddle. All of a sudden, I'm playing beer pong. But no, I've clearly been playing beer pong for a while. I don't remember starting to play this. Who is this guy I'm playing with? And who am I playing against? Is my team winning? People are cheering me on like we're all best friends. But I don't remember telling any of these strangers my name. I feel like I vaguely remember yelling something and everyone looking at me and a guy picking me up and hugging me, but I don't see him anymore or remember his name. I think this has to be like my fifth game. Has it been minutes or hours since I left the kitchen? There's only like 20 people left in this house. It has to be mad late. Oh no, I missed. Now I have to chug another cup of beer and there's definitely gonna be hairs in it. My hearing starts fading out again as I drink it. I feel like I'm trying to wake up from a dream over and over. Did I go to bed? No, I'm still at the party and I'm sort of standing up. Now I'm standing in the doorway. We're all leaving. Someone's yelling, get out. I see a car. I know it's taking people home and I know I need a ride, but I don't know how to get in it or who's driving it. It looks so far away at the end of the driveway. Johnny is next to me again. He says he'll make sure I get home. I tell him he has to because I can't. I don't think I could even walk to my own car to sleep in. When I open my eyes again, he's carrying me to the car because my legs don't work. And then I'm on his lap in the back seat. Now I'm turning around and throwing up into the trunk because I don't know how to not throw up. Now we're making out. Is he making me make out with him? Or am I making him make out with me? I can't tell. I just barfed. Why am I making out at all? Making out makes me want to throw up again, so I do. Now the driver wants me to get out, 
Even though it's pouring and like 45 degrees, there's over a mile to go to my house and I'm in a t-shirt. There aren't any street lights on this whole road. It's pitch black. I can barely get my body out of the car. Johnny helps me stand up. It feels like 500 hours of sloshing through shin-deep mud puddles, but we get to the house with him holding me up a lot of the way. And I realize as we get to the steps, he's coming in with me now. He has to. Neither of us can drive, and there's no car here anyway. I didn't think of that. I don't want to sleep with him, I don't think. But I couldn't have gotten home without him. Maybe I owe him? He carried me so far through the rain. When we get in, I know I need to take a shower immediately because I'm freezing from being soaked in the cold rain without a coat. I just start taking my clothes off. I don't tell him to get in the shower with me because I still can't really make a sentence. But next thing I know, he's there next to me. Then we're in my bed. Then I'm yelling weird things I've never yelled because pretending to be super into what I'm doing might help me actually be into what I'm doing. Did I just hear myself say, yeehaw? The Monday after the party, we have to go to Thomas's house to make cleaning supplies. Well, really, his dad's estate. The only boy who's working with us is there, Jamie, who's a rower with black hair and big arms. He's what my mom would call a hunk. And a thin, red-haired girl named Lucy, who seems pretty quiet. Thomas says to me in front of both of them, So I hear you got to know Johnny. I freeze mid-pour of soap into spray bottle and feel myself blushing. Jamie giggles. Wow. Okay, Thomas, please make fun of me for sleeping with someone in our second week of work. Real professional, dude. Uh, yeah, he, uh, helped me get home. Lucy is keeping her attention on her own bottle of cleaning fluid. My tone was bitchy enough that Thomas stops asking me questions. Sweet. Mission accomplished. I hope Lucy doesn't think I'm a bitch, though. Lucy and I are driving to our house assignment. We've cleaned one place together before. Thomas had dropped us off in his car and left us there for seven entire hours and didn't bother to mention anything to us about food. There was nowhere in walking distance. I came very close to stealing a yogurt from the fridge. He also told us to try not to use the bathrooms. When he picked us up, I immediately noticed the sandwich wrapper on his car floor and called him out on it. Since then, he sometimes brought us coffee when we're working. I guess today we're going to some billionaire couple's house. One of their houses. Thomas has told us they have 22 houses all over the world and own one in Vineyard Haven, plus started renting another one that overlooks Edgartown Harbor, where their yacht is parked. They also sometimes live in the yacht. We're going to the new rental house. It looks like the kind of house I've only seen on TV before. It has three other buildings in the complex. When we get inside the house, 
the cook, and one of the couple's two live-in personal assistants tell us we'll be cleaning each of the two houses twice a week. I can't do the math here. Two people spread out between two enormous houses plus a yacht, and somehow each one of these houses needs to be cleaned twice a week? The cook tells us the husband is particular and that we need to wash the woman's underwear by hand and to make sure there isn't a single particle of dust on the wine glasses or silverware when we set the table for dinner. I don't really get why that's our job as a chemical-free deep cleaning service, not royal servants, right? When he tells us we should try not to be seen or heard, I understand my mistake. This is American royalty. Lucy and I look at each other. She opens her eyes in a way that makes me choke down a laugh. We go upstairs and split up to make the beds, and I take stock of the rooms. It seems like there's four huge bedrooms, and all have their own bathrooms. So I can't really tell which one's supposed to be the master. Then I go into the office and notice a door on the back wall. Oh. I slide it open and realize there's another entire wing of house down here. The master wing. There's a room with a toilet and a bidet. There's two separate walk-in closets, each the size of a large bedroom. The master bedroom itself, which is the size of a one-bedroom apartment. And at the very end of the hallway, there is a room with a bathtub you could easily put six people in and a shower that's actually another entire room itself lined with granite. I decide to clean the bathroom, and I find dirty underwear, both his and hers, on the floor and contact lenses popped out of someone's eyes and dried stuck to the counter. I scrape them off with my fingernails and pop them into the trash can less than a foot away. Maybe I should finish my degree. The Chappaquiddick, or Chappy Ferry, is the cutest thing I've ever seen. I feel like I'm actually driving my car on the ocean. All that separates my tires and the water is this rectangular platform of wood and metal. But the ride's over in five minutes. When we get to the other side, I drive off and head down the one main road toward Lucy's cottage. As rustic as the house I'm living in is, she's got me beat by a mile. I go in to the little square hand-built shack. Lucy offers me some Morning Glory Farm zucchini bread. Yes, please. I ask her how it's been at Lady Gaga's manager's house. We'd clean there together a couple times, but she has it pretty regularly. One time, I knew the family wasn't home, so after picking up the dirty underwear and putting it in the laundry bin and all the other normal stuff, and found a real MTV Moon Man Award and took a picture of it. Now, every time I hear Lady Gaga on the radio, I say aloud, I've had my arm elbow deep in your manager's toilet. And it's true. They don't have any toilet brushes in that house for some reason, so I use a sponge. I haven't gotten to meet the family themselves, but I know they're black, and I think it's cool that despite America's horrific racism, 
and at least occasionally a black family can have white maids. Lucy tells me she got to help out at their niece's wedding that was in the backyard, and that they're really nice people with a bunch of kids, not super out of touch like the wannabe royalty billionaires. We start making fun of the billionaires. The woman is like, barely pregnant, yet needs to lie down and get a massage in the guest bedroom from her personal assistant for like two hours every day. She doesn't even work, and the husband just inherited the company from his dad and sold it, so he doesn't really work either. I guess they probably say they're philanthropists or something. We laugh about the time the wife legitimately came up to us holding a dead plant and a loaf of old stale bread and asked if we wanted to take them home. We had to keep a straight face as we said no thanks. Like, we aren't that poor lady. As I look around Lucy's little plywood cube house, I feel glad I have her as my friend. She's probably a little weird too, and like me, doesn't demand any certain amount of attention. So, it works. I have to hang on to these people when I find them. We have a day off today, so we're going to go down to South Beach. We hop in my car and drive back to the ferry. When we cross over the sand dunes to the beach, we see the circle of people we know from work and their friends. It's pretty much all guys. Most of them have abs they're showing off, except one sort of annoying red-haired kid I've seen before. It takes me a minute, but I realize I've cleaned his parents' mansion a few times. Lucy and I picked up the carriage house where his sister stays after the remains of her party. There were thongs strewn all over for some reason. I'm sure neither of these blessed children has a job. Everyone on the beach is drinking, of course, despite all the no-alcohol signs. Johnny's there, playing volleyball too, but I don't really talk to him anymore. We talked a little bit after that stupid night and the following really rough next day, hungover and hitchhiking back to the car. But we kind of both stopped texting each other after that. Whatever. The conversation among the group is about sports, so Lucy and I decide to go for a walk down the beach. Oh no. I see him coming toward us. It's Jamie. I wonder if he'll even acknowledge me. He's got sunglasses on. I'm sure he's hung over as hell after last night. Lucy knows what happened. We all say a weird hi and then keep walking different directions. Lucy and I burst out laughing afterwards. I still can't believe that happened, I say. It's true. Last night feels like a strange dream or maybe a nightmare. Defiling the interior of my boss's car with my coworker, his idea leaving him completely passed out, snoring loudly, with no pants but his shirt still on afterwards. I was very much awake and sober, unlike him, so I just quietly got out of the car, closed the door gingerly, and drove home, laughing to myself. I wonder if Thomas found him in there. I tell Lucy that I guess I can cross hooking up with a hot jock off my list of things to do in life. Not sure why so many girls aspire to such a truly forgettable experience. 
We finally get far enough down the beach away from the bros to a quieter spot and plunk down in silence. It never feels awkward with her when we don't talk. My kind of friendship. I look at the waves. Lucy pulls out a book, and I open my journal and start a new page. I write at the top, So much for my summer of zen. Is this just life without a band? I ask the page. Dear Young Rocker, Boy, am I glad you learned your lesson about drinking too much. Seeing the guy who owned the car in the grocery store later that week, the one you threw up in, and feeling horrible when he reminded you of what you did to his back seat, probably went a long way towards scaring you straight. And after the horrific amount of pain you were in the day after that party, alcohol is something that just will never agree with you like it does with other people. But you will learn to live happily mostly without it. After a couple more mistakes, of course. But I also can't not mention the issue of consent with regards to that evening. This is one of those tricky examples. I mainly don't want anyone to worry about you, so I'll let them know right now. You didn't feel like your consent was forced or not given at all or anything like that. But to be frank, there's a big memory gap for all of the details. We do remember the feelings, however. And I think what matters in any situation like that is what your intuition tells you afterwards. And yours just told you and still tells you, damn, I shouldn't ever drink that much ever again. Yep, and you don't. But I know you feel lost on your journey of figuring out how to be yourself, but doing supposed normie stuff like getting way too drunk or dressing any certain way isn't a requirement to make friends. And you know that deep down. I'm sure you know Lucy would have been your friend, even if you dressed like totally goth because she's the kind of person you get along with. An unpretentious, easy to talk to, down to earth person. And there's no point in being friends with anyone who isn't that because you get sick of them and how you feel around them quickly. People who judge each other based on how expensive their clothes are or how fancy their job is or how many famous people they know, bleh. You're lucky to see through all of that and not be seduced by it whatsoever. The insecurity and desperation to fit in is a result of your post-band, post-music major life. You had one place you knew how to fit in. The rules were simple there. Play and listen to music and talk about it. I promise you're still totally capable of being around other humans, even if no music is involved. And even if social skills seem like this giant, confusing mystery, you'll be back in your musical element soon enough. You haven't totally lost your rocker spirit and become a normie, nor will you ever, I promise. I know you feel like you're not fully enjoying your idealistic island life right now either. Almost like you don't deserve its beauty because you can't fully absorb it. It's a strange feeling. 
To this day, whenever I visit a truly beautiful forest or beach or other natural place, I immediately get a hard rock in my stomach of anxiety over not taking it in enough. It literally happened to me yesterday when I discovered a really pretty bike trail. We have a kind of anxiety that is unfortunately highly intelligent. It knows exactly what we want. For instance, feeling a sense of peace and calm in a beautiful natural setting or getting some creative work done. And it knows how to sabotage it. It's messed up, but all I can say to you and me is that once again, There is no reason to feel bad about having anxiety or having stuff that should make you happy actually make you depressed. It's okay. As backwards as it seems, accepting these feelings openly and warmly, instead of trying to push them away, is truly the only way to get them to lose their power. Just say, I see what you're doing here, anxiety. You're a part of me, and I acknowledge you and then go back to what you're doing. I'm so glad you spent the summer there, as weird as it was. Since I now know the fate of your most treasured and beloved place. If I told you, it would break your heart. So, I won't. But I think you already know it in your bones, you intuitive creature, you. See you next time. Next time on Dear Young Rocker, Chelsea gets involved with another drummer. Will she ever learn? Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. The show was written and created by me, Chelsea Erson. I also wrote the theme song, I record and edit the episodes, and I create many of the musical pieces and sound effects you hear in the show. The other half of our two-person production team is Colin Fleming, who provides more sound design and music and also mixes the episodes. I would also love if you would join me on Instagram at Dear Young Rocker and follow Double Elvis too. I also have Facebook and Twitter. And I just really love hearing stories and seeing pictures of your own awkward young rocker beginnings. So please dig up an old picture and tag me and I will definitely reshare it. And please, please share this story with anyone, anyone who has a young rocker in their life who you think could be touched by this because that's the whole point. And write a review on a podcast if you like the show because that goes far toward the goal of helping kids feel less alone too. Thank you. Dear Young Rocker is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis Productions. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.